I, I am here from Mount Pleasant, right down the road. Um, have a bunch of kids. I hope to bring them here next week. And um, Ruth, the book of Ruth, we're going through Ruth, and there's four chapters, and each chapter is long. That's why I'm changing up the readings. Kenneth taught on Ruth 1 last week. This week, we're in Ruth 2. What I wanted to do is, is I'm going to read Ruth 2 sort of in the midst of the beginning of the sermon. So I'm going to kind of start out because I want to talk about what I'm about to read so that y'all can listen with ears ready to, to, to find something. And so um, a couple reminders of what Kenneth taught about to set us up to where we are as we transition from chapter 1 into chapter 2 is one of the things Kenneth said is in the time of the judges, which was a very dark time for Israel, um, their faithfulness to Yahweh was ebbing and flowing, waxing and waning, mostly waning, and everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. That's kind of how the book ends, which is a horrible thing if you know the human heart, if you know your own heart. Um, and Naomi and Ruth, they're two of our main characters. They're facing an almost impossible situation Ruth was married to Naomi's son. Both of their husbands die, leaving them widowed, which was essentially homeless. Uh, one of the things Kenneth taught about was the Beit Av, the house of the father, this system where if you were a woman, you needed to be attached to a man somehow, daughter or married to, um, so that you had a household that could care for you with land that could provide a way of life for, for, for growing food, for, for raising food or for trade. And so here they are, home, homeless and helpless and hopeless, and um, Naomi is pretty distraught. And we're looking for a miracle. Naomi, she's too old to get married. She's too old to have a kid, let alone let the kid be a boy and then raise that boy to marry Ruth. By that time, Ruth would be too old. So it really looks like a hopeless situation. But Ruth, nonetheless, clings to Naomi, and it's really unexpected. You're kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? So the question we should be asking at this moment is, how is Yahweh going to provide for these women in this situation? How is he going to get them out of such a desperate place? So I have a specific ask for you as you listen to Ruth 2. Listen for this. Every word of Scripture is carefully chosen and crafted. It's written by a human author, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. But there's these beautiful devices that the Hebrew authors use to signal us to look for things and to think about things. And one of these devices that they use is repetition. It's the simple repeating of a word over and over again, sometimes a seemingly unnecessary number of times. And you might be like, oh, wow, he's saying that word a lot. Well, he's saying it for a reason. He's saying it because he want, he's signaling something to you. He's saying, hey, I, I want you to know this is what I'm writing about. And, and maybe even it might connect to another story in Scripture. So as you listen, there's going to be a verb that's repeated 12 times. Try to catch it. But don't try to count the number of words because you're just going to not even pay attention to the story. Instead, just visualize the story as you listen to it. Look at the action. What are the actions that, that are happening? And you're going to see this one action kind of over and over. And, and when, we, when we get to the end of it, we'll see what that helps us reveal. It's going to kind of pull back a layer to let us dig into that scripture. So, with that, a reading from Ruth 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, who in, in, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother in your native land and you came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you've done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I'm not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here, and eat some bread, dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he also said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Did anyone pick up on the repetition? What was the predominant action? Just shout it out if you... Glean! glean. Yeah, glean. Yeah. It's repeated over and over. So glean is, is sometimes translated gather. So um, that word, as it's used... It's 12 times. It also shows up in another story where it's, um, 
used nine times. And can anyone think of another story in Scripture where Israel is involved in gathering, the gathering of anything? Can anybody think of it? If you can, shout it out. If not, that's fine. Somebody say something. Everybody's afraid. We don't do this at this service, do we? We don't talk back and forth. I know. <laughs> something new. But listen, the gathering of manna. That's, that's where it's used nine times. It's only used 34 times in all of Scripture. So those are two big scenes, heavy use of that word. So one thing the author is trying to do um, is signal us back to the episode of the provision of manna. That's sort of a prototypical example of God's miraculous provision. That's what that whole manna thing is, the bread from heaven when they needed food in the wilderness. And so the author is trying to tell us, like, hey, God's doing something here. He's providing something in a miraculous way. Get ready. Like, th this is what's happening. So Yahweh's at work. His hand is in this situation. And um, he has not abandoned Naomi like Naomi thought he had. And it also appears he's trying to do something where he's going to provide for everyone involved. Now, quick side note. That word appearing 12 times, not 11 times, not 13 times, 12, it also may signal, because 12 is the number of the tribes of Israel, and whenever it's used in Scripture, sometimes it's pointing us to something for the whole nation of Israel. It may signal that God is doing something here that's going to provide, not just for Ruth and Naomi, but all of Israel. And we'll find out later, I'm going to let Kenneth talk about it, I'm going to stop there, but when we get to Ruth 4, there's tremendous provision in the lineage of Ruth. For all of Israel and for us. So, but our biggest discovery in Ruth 2 is not just Yahweh's miraculous provision of grain, but his miraculous provision of Boaz, this kinsman redeemer figure who provides the grain and more. We find out that, hey, actually, Naomi, maybe you forgot, but the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus actually provides a way for uh, men to care for widows that the closest male relative could marry a widow, the closest male relative uh, to, to the husband that died, could marry a widow to provide for her, to, to keep her protected um, from being outcast and marginalized, and carry, even carry on the family name and the land uh, of the deceased husband. So Boaz turns out to be this miraculous provision. And the way his identity unfolds in the story is there's this sort of progression of increasing generosity and hospitality toward Ruth. And it culminates in Ruth 4. We're going to stay in Ruth 2. So running the bullet points of Ruth 2, sort of the action, how she's brought in, here's how it goes. And when it starts out, Ruth shows up at the field gleaning the leftovers, which she was permitted to do by the law. The field happens to belong to this kinsman redeemer. That's God's hand at work here. Boaz tells her, stay close to his young women and instructs the men not to touch her. So there's this instant sort of protection that he puts over her. Then Boaz gives her water, quenches her thirst. And then there's this moment right after that where Ruth falls on her face in gratefulness, just overwhelmed. And in this moment, Boaz recognizes Ruth's virtue because he had heard all about what Ruth had done and her loyalty to Naomi. And he blesses her and he says, the Lord repay you for what you've done, and the full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. 
But then what does he do? Well, he doesn't just wait for God to drop manna from the sky or God to put his wings over her, but he recognizes that he himself is to be Yahweh's wings, that he's going to be a conduit of provision for Ruth, uh, but Yahweh acting through him. And it's a really beautiful thing when you see that, because what happens next? He brings her in even closer. This sort of progression of bringing her in keeps going, and he invites her to dine at his table. They're drinking wine, dipping bread into the wine together. And, he, and then he opens up her ability to glean, not just from the leftovers, but from the sheaves that had already been harvested. He's just flinging everything he has wide open to her, all the provision she needs. Boaz's care for Ruth in this moment is this shocking ray of light in a dark, dark time. And, and what we should see is that Yahweh's provision is nothing short of miraculous, as we're reading through this. That's what the author wants us to see. So something that Kenneth mentioned last week was that this scripture was not necessarily written to us, but it was written for us. And there's a couple ways, two ways I want to point out how chapter two is written for us. Um, Number one, the whole story signals us to look forward to Yahweh's ultimate provision in Jesus. This is something that we should meditate on in our reading, something that many Old Testament stories do, and this one is so beautiful. How can we look at the provision that Boaz provides, that he brings to Ruth in this scene, and recognize, help, help, let it help us to recognize the provision that Jesus gives us? You know, Ruth comes to Boaz with nothing. She's a dead woman walking. Boaz steps up to act as the wings of Yahweh to protect and provide for Ruth, giving her food and drink and all that she needs. And we come to Jesus with nothing. You know, we're we're dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses without him. But he invites us in. He invites us to his table and he says, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Drink this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And when we hear these words at the table, there's, there should be a level of shock that, that uh, and, and very often there is, that you're like, whoa, that, just for free. I haven't done anything. I've brought nothing. I'm dead. And, and you're inviting me in to your table. But he says, drink this. Take, eat. It's everything I have and all that I am, and it's all that you need. And it's a grace that we receive together as a family that's meant to knit us together, God's God's family, to be a light in a dark, dark world to those around us. We all need the body and blood of Jesus to make us right with God and each other, but for the sake of the world around us. Which brings me to the second and final way I want to point out how this chapter was written for us. It's written for us so that we can get a vision of community like the one I described just now and that Ruth, in the book of Ruth describes. But it's a vision of of God's heart for his family. How we could be knit together as a beacon of light in a dark time when everyone else around us seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. And and even us, even even how we do that. So Ruth too illuminates this this vision. And to flesh that out a little, I want to close with a, a story about a time a few years ago when I was 
an anti-Boaz, I'll say. In other words, I was the complete opposite of Boaz. My eyes, I was doing what was right in my own eyes, and I wasn't recognizing a situation that was in front of me where I could have been a provider. I could have been Yahweh's wings for somebody. Couldn't recognize it. So this was about seven years ago. Here's our situation. I was still in seminary. I'm running businesses as well. Catherine and I just had our fifth child. Our oldest child was six years old, so we had five kids under six. Our house was pretty bonkers. We had just taken this little room in the upstairs of our house and turned it into a guest room, mainly to entice Catherine's mother to come stay with us and help. (laughs) When out of nowhere, Catherine and I get this email uh, from a friend of a friend of a friend, some stranger that we didn't know. It's this well-written letter of, of a testimony from a young girl. And in her, in her testimony, she explains where God had taken her and what he was calling her to do, and that was to go to occupational therapy school at MUSC, and how she was convicted not to take on any debt during that time, and how she was also convicted that the family of God could help her kind of get there by providing a place to live and and. and and, and food to eat. And so I read it, and I immediately thought of three people, three great candidates that I could forward this email to. And it did not even cross my mind that it might be us. Like, no way, you know. And that night, Catherine and I were sitting in front of our fire, and Catherine brought up the email. I just kind of rolled my eyes, and I'm like, yeah, I, I told her the three names, the three people that we, could, we should forward it to. Yeah, they, they, they have big houses and room and stuff. And then Catherine says, well, I kind of had this sense that it might be us. Like, he might be calling us to help this girl. And I was just like, mind-blown. Like, what are you talking about? Like, our life is bonkers right now. Nobody even wants to live with us. Why would somebody want to come live with us? But we talked about it for a little bit, and I was not budging. Um, I was just doing what was right in my own eyes, and I could totally justify it easily. She had this kind of persistent peace about it, though. And so where I left it was like, okay, listen, let's pray for two days about it. It was a Tuesday. We'll meet back here in front of the fire on Thursday night, and we'll see what, what, what the Lord has led us to. And that was really just a delay tactic for her to sort of submit to her husband's wisdom and come, come to grips with reality. Um, but I got up from that meeting, and I... I step out of the den and I start to walk down this hallway to our bedroom, which is only about four paces long. And on the first, about the first step, I take, I, I say this really pathetic prayer that I knew was going to be the only prayer I prayed over the next two days about this situation. And it was something like, you know, God, if you, if you want this girl to live with us, let me know. You know, keep moving. And then by about the third step, I hear this voice in my, in my head and in my heart that, that I believe in faith that it was the Lord. And he says, she'll be like a daughter to you. And by the time I got to the end of the hallway, you know, tears are streaming down my face. And I knew that I had just been given the grace to do something, to obey, to obey the Lord in this matter. And I, I, didn't, I didn't tell Catherine for two days about that. I was just going to, I was hoping something would change, but it didn't. <laughs> Catherine was really the Boaz figure here. Um, she was the one willing to bring this girl in. 
If Boaz probably had a guy next to him saying, what the heck are you doing inviting that Moabitess to your table, you idiot? You know, you, you can't do that. That was me. That, that's, that was the way I was acting. Um, but anyway, we invite Ashlyn and her family over for dinner. Catherine cooks a, a curry that burned the mouth of Ashlyn's mother-in-law, or mother. Um, and uh, they also had dinner with a different family, uh, a family that was... It had kids out of the house, had a giant house. It was close to campus. But ultimately, Ashlyn came to us and said, it doesn't make any sense, but I just feel like I belong here. And we said, okay. You know, and we didn't tell Ashlyn any of that other stuff about how we discerned to invite her in. I, I didn't tell her that until years later, actually. <clears throat> but sure enough, Ashlyn lived with us for two years. She graduated um, from OT school debt-free, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was, it was so great. Um, during that time, she met a guy. Since then, they've gotten married. They've, ha- they've had two kids now. We were just on the phone with, on a Zoom call with them talking about some parenting issues. But I did her wedding. Both her and her husband are precious to us. Um, and what an amazing opportunity that I, m- I might have missed. But everything in the world around me was shouting, you're nuts if you invite this stranger in. And, and I was listening to the world. And it, in this particular case, the Holy Spirit stepped in and really like retuned my heart to align with God in his heart. But, but that kind of thing doesn't happen often to me. Like it's not a daily occurrence, you know. So sometimes something like that will happen when he just has to knock me over the head. But I would much rather be in tune with God's heart all the time and not just have to be knocked over the head all the time. So that's why I meditate on stories like Ruth. And I sit with it and I let my imagination run with it. And I let it shape my vision for how God's family could be. How could it look? And I ask myself, and I ask God, who is it around me that, that, that you could use me to provide for? Is there someone that you love that I need to act as your wings for? Even if it looks like there's a sacrifice, you know? Am I even willing to pray a prayer about it? Um, so my simple assignment for y'all is not to do something. I don't want you to do anything necessarily unless the Lord leads you to, but to receive something. Today, as we come to this table, would you be open to allowing this table to renew your heart, to retune your heart, to be in tune with God's heart, and to receiving a seat at Jesus' table that he gives us as a free gift and expect to be transformed. But to hear his voice, hear his voice say, take, eat, drink this. I'm giving you all that I have and all that I am. And just to see how it might transform you. Be open to that. Be open to see how it might even transform you to be his wings for someone that he loves. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so good to us, so loving, so generous, so hospitable. So gracious, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your table that you invite us to. We, your unworthy servants, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for being worthy for our sake, Lord Jesus. Open our eyes to the world around us. Close our ears to the world around us, Lord. Open our ears to your voice, Lord. Speak to us through your word through the bread and wine today. In Jesus' name.
Amen. Amen.